You are now entering the MXU podcast. No credentials required. What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 47 of the MXU podcast. I'm your host, and so is Jeff. And actually, <laughs> so should Robert. He should just be a host because... Yeah, I think so. He's been... This, he, he, he is now um, the record holder for the most appearances as a guest on the MXU podcast. Might as well be a, a co-host. I mean... Well, I, I think what that means more than anything is I need some work. I need a job. I, <laughs> you know, I got too much free time on my hands right now. That's what that means. I know that's not true because <laughs> for anybody who's been paying attention... Uh, between the labs that you're hosting as webinars and then all the avid stuff that's coming down the pike, I know that you've been slammed. Busy. Yeah, man. So yeah, may not be mixing, but you've been working. That's true. That is very true. It has been a very, very busy time, especially here lately, man. Whew. Crushing. Uh, we've said it before, but it's such a weird thing, too, for some people in our industry to be extremely busy and some to not. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. a strange days. Well, I mean, uh, and, and not to rub noses in it, but I mean, I feel really, really fortunate to to be working with Avid. Otherwise, yeah. I mean, if I was relying totally on touring income right now, I would be hurting, absolutely right. hurting. So, yeah, I feel very, very fortunate to have that work. But on the flip side, like we mentioned before we hit record, what a blessing in disguise this has been for education, you know, with, yeah, you know, certainly with what we do, but even guys like yourself and Pooch and Raybold, what those guys are doing. There's just so much more options for education out there now, but I feel like everyone's also now participating too. Yeah. The engagement is the encouraged thing, encouraging thing, right? I mean, mm. uh, and it, it really kind of shows you, I think something that at least I feel like I've known for a long time and, and tried to get across to people. And I think you guys know this uh, just from, being motivated to put together MXU is that there is an incredible thirst for knowledge and insight into how we do this stuff. You know, I mean, there are yeah. a lot of people out there that really want to know it and, and understand it, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, th now that we got this downtime, I mean, it's just fed that whole appetite. And, and of course, you know, during the downtime, you know, which started in the first quarter of this year, you know, of course, everybody became a teacher, you know, everybody, everybody's yeah. a teacher now and mm -hmm. got their own thing, uh, you know, trying to, you know, show how they do it and what they're doing, et cetera. You know, I, you know, I, I, I think back on like when I was coming into this, you know, as a, you know, 18, 19 year old kid, you know, wh what I had to go through to even find one scintilla of information about this, I'll call it an art form about this art form, you know, about what we kind of do in this business. I mean, it was almost impossible, almost impossible. And now we are at the complete other end of that. I mean, the amount of information at your fingertips, you, you could never even see it or read it all in a lifetime. You couldn't do it. No, you couldn't. And um, like you said, there's an appetite for it. But I also think because of how fast technology's moved, there's also some evidence of people that don't understand what's actually going on under the hood. Which, uh, there's a whole lot of that for sure. Uh, yeah. And that's a big reason we we specifically said, hey, let's get Robert back on here to talk about uh, gain structure, because <laughs> in in one of your labs, you you go real deep into gain structure, deeper than I've ever been, certainly. Yeah. So, you know, that was like an hour and fifty minute uh, YouTube video that everyone should go check out. And if they haven't seen any of your labs, just go to YouTube and subscribe to Robert Scoville's channel. Yeah, there's yeah. all kinds of stuff there. Um, but should we just dive right in? I actually have a bunch of questions related to that video. Well, we can, I, you know, I would just say, you know, it wasn't like that lab just grew out of a weekend, uh, and, you know, do it. I, I mean, that's stuff that I've been kind of, you know, researching and refining. I mean, there are videos kind of, you know, phone videos of me giving that presentation years ago, you know, yeah. and I've just kind of added to it and refined it over time. Like I've added the component of, you know, sound quality, you know, how do I get analog sound quality? You know, how do we do this with plugins? What does metering mean in a plugin? You know, I mean, all those kind of things play right into that gain structure thing because, you know, poor gain structure is how we got some of the analog sound. Right. That's true. Yeah. You can't get um, harmonic distortion and tape saturation without a little too much gain sometimes. Yeah. But, so you, but the point being, you can't get that in a digital console 
period. Right. Right. You right. have to go outside the bounds of that to get it. So right. Digital zero is bad. And so, you know, <laughs> it is a going book. over the going over the zero on those VU meters and analog gear is one thing, but <laughs> you go over zero and digital and you're not gonna like the results. Yeah. Unless you're Trent Reznor. I mean Trent likes it, so that's cool. I'm okay with that. <laughs> well that's one of the things I wrote down. I because you said uh clipping in digital is muting. What well, is? It's not there is no clipping of a waveform per se. It's just running out of bit math and just goes mute. Sorry, got no more math. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's just there's no. only so many zeros and ones right. that you can accommodate. I mean, and that's then the end of that, that point. full scale, right? So yeah. Right. So you know, it's. Uh, I mean, it happens so quickly that we don't. You know, we interpret it as distortion, which it is. I mean, it's distorting, but it's not clipping of a waveform as we traditionally know it in analog, right? The squaring off of a waveform. Yeah. The other interesting thing to me was the realization that true 24-bit resolution doesn't happen until that point. When we're looking at line level Mm -hmm. as our kind of goal for just here's where we're going to set the gain per input, that we're not at 24 bits at that point, but we need to get to that point or a little more to be able to even get to 20 or 21 bits because of you know just wanting to take advantage of as much of that resolution as we can. Yeah, and and in full transparency, I would tell you this that there is some debate about that among A to D A to D designers versus the golden ears of our business, you know. I, I mean mm-hmm. the golden ears unquestionably say, look, higher bit depth, higher bit resolution, that sounds better. But I, I've had A, A to D converter manufacturers tell me, eh, it doesn't really matter. I mean it's going to sound the same regardless of where you're at. But, you know, the thing that I try to get across in the lab is that may be true if we look at the converter in isolation, okay? Even if you want to say, okay, you know, the bit depth stuff, that's crap. I don't care about that. But here's the thing that is absolutely fact. There is a preamp, an analog preamp, correlated to that A to D converter. Right. Right? And there is going to be a a sweet spot of that preamp at line level and around it right? Mm-hmm. Maybe just above it to try to get some harmonics into it. And that is correlated to that bit depth. Right. right. So, you know, you can't just say, well, it doesn't matter in A to D conversion. It's going to sound the same everywhere because there's a preamp before there's it. There's a preamp involved. Right. That's so great. those two things are correlated. You, you can't just, you can't just look at them in isolation, you know? And do you feel like there's any debate in whether a preamp has a sweet spot? I don't think there's any debate of that. I, I yeah. mean, that's you could easily prove that, right? Right. And, and you know, the sweet spot of a preamp is going to be the sweet spot of just about kind of any electronic circuit. It's going to be optimized at a certain level, right? There's going to be a certain amount of signal level where the signal to noise specs, the harmonic specs, all of those specs are going to be at their best, right? Yep. That's certainly mm-hmm. not at the low end of the scale. That's where all signal to noise you know, comes into play in analog, regardless of whether it's a preamp or any circuit. Right. And then above it, there's going to be a place where we get harmonic addition, harmonic plume is what I call it. And then to the point of saturation, right? I And anywhere in between, somewhere in between there is going to be the sweet spot for the pre where you go, hmm, yeah, that's really, really working right now. Maybe if we go a little bit above it, we start to get some harmonics in it. Now it starts to take on the character of a, a preamp, right? You follow me there? Yeah, totally. Yeah, interesting. So is do you feel like there's digital platforms or digital environments where like I'm thinking about like a Midas console. Everybody wants to run those, you know, put those drums in the red. It sounds great. But it on analog, yeah, sure. That's what we just talked about. But on digital, the preamp that may be true of, but is there a would you ever do like run a digital preamp a little hotter? even though you're getting closer to digital clip? Or would you just go, let's just keep it all playing safe at line level? No, it, you ha- that's situational. You have to look, uh, analyze the signal in and of itself. And you know what you just described there is actually why I think doing drums, drums in particular, in the digital world is so difficult. Yeah. Because there is a huge disparity between the peak information in it and the RMS information in it. Because of all the transients. Because of all the transient. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's easily, you know, on a snare drum, I mean, especially one that's tuned up and maybe a little bit bright, you might have 15, 18 dB of difference between the RMS and the peak. Right. right? So that keeps you 
like in, in digital, because we can't get above that that zero point, right? That keeps you from overdriving that preamp like we would normally do in analog. We might let those peaks go well past the clip point because what happens in analog is that as you start to saturate there a little bit, right? That peak starts to shave off a little bit, yep. right? And it mm-hmm. starts to sound a little fatter. Well, by the time we get to that point in digital, we're already past digital over. Yep. You follow me there? I I mean, honestly, that's why I think drums are so difficult, are so challenging to do uh, in analog. And I mean, you could make a good argument for it. I I don't think we'll see it anytime soon, but I think we may see this at some point in the future. Because keep in mind, you know, that analog pre is the only analog circuit in the entire console. It's the only place where you could grab any organically grown harmonic, right? Yeah. Right. So- that you could make a good argument, and I think I do this. I actually, I know I did this in the lab, where you put another gain stage after the preamp pre the converter, right? So I can run up the preamp and get the harmonic, and then turn it down into the converter. Oh, that's interesting, right? And that's in that lab. If you look at it, I think I'm using a Neve. Maybe it might even be a Neve knockoff into a standalone converter to show that yeah, look, I can drive this all the way up and get all this harmonic information. And then back it off to keep, you know, to keep the gain uh, or the conversion process in play, right? And keep it safe. Matter of fact, it gets easier at that point because now the the distortion in the pre has kind of crunched the signal a little bit and you could get it higher into the converter if you needed to do it. But things like a vocal, maybe a keyboard, things like that, would I run those a little hotter than line level? Sure. If I can get away with it, I might do that. Depends on what it does downstream for me gain structure wise because it's not just about preamp into converter. Remember, there's other processing coming later where, you know, you want to pay attention there as well. You know, it, then it, if you get significantly out of that line level stage at the very beginning, then things can kind of tumble out of control as you get farther down the console if you're not careful, you know. That's great. So a lot of our tribe and a lot of our maybe volunteers in churches, you know, they're starting to sort of understand what this means, but they're their context for it is only in terms of how does this input level, input gain impact what happens at my faders. And so I feel like we need to back up a few steps to just sort of clarify some of the foundational principles. Um, The difference, you know, really the purpose of gain is to get mic level to line level in the first place. Correct. Right. That gain knob on your console is really just to add voltage to the signal to get mic level to line level in the first place. And then the fader, I love I love when you said it at the very beginning of the lab, the fader is mostly an attenuator. Yeah. Because, it is all an attenuator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean <laughs> because the amount the amount of the amount of throw that you have on your fader to get line level hotter is pretty limited. And so, you know, we 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 answer this question all the time. So maybe we just need to review like once I'm at line level and my fader resolution is you know, jacked up because I can only get my fader so high because the signal's so hot. Like, how do you talk to people about addressing that? Because I really think people care about fader resolution mm-hmm. so that small fader moves don't have a drastic effect um, on the output level. Right. But then, you know, how do you maintain high fader resolution with appropriate input gain? Yeah. And I think to properly respect that, you have to, uh, kind of dive into realizing how challenging live sound is to do. Okay. Because this kind of thing, the studio handles this much easier than we handle it in live sound. In the studio, you're working on one song at a time. Okay. So you could print really hot. And then when you're getting ready to mix that and it comes back into the return path, you just trim the return path down to get your fader into high resolution. Yeah. Simple, Mm -hmm. easy. But if they had to do that song over song over song over song, how would they manage that? In real time. In real time. <laughs> In real time. Yeah. You're not just going to go over to 18 or 24 drum channels and go trim all of those down to get a little more gain to the mix on that. You know, you there has to be some mechanism there to do that in real time. And I, for my money, that's always been an audio subgroup, you know, not a VCA, yep, good. an audio subgroup. And I, I, I think I said this in the lab as well. You know, that is the workflow that I was taught 
the first very very first time I ever sat down at a mixer. I was a little Kelsey 16 channel mixer, two subgroups to the master. And you just broke it up into vocals and music, you know, and it was like yeah. that was that was the way to get your fader system optimized, right? Uh, you know, because it becomes volume control for those components into the PA system. And it, well, into the mix bus, really, as much as anything. Yeah. And you're not necessarily mixing with those subgroups. You're just using them as volume sets. Right. Uh, I think a lot of us do that. The challenge, obviously, is like if you're mixing in-ears and front of house on the same console and you start running out of groups and then everybody goes, well, that's what I use the digital trim for. But then I feel like, well, where is that digital trim in the signal chain? Because that matters big time. Yeah, and from what I understand, most of the most of the discrete digital trims in the consoles, the consoles that offer a discrete digital trim, meaning it's not correlated to the preamp in some way like we do with the Avid console. My instincts tell me that that is probably right after the converter in most of those consoles. Yeah, which is ironic, uh, given what we just talked about, because I think you know the people that I ask, it's like, well, how do you use that digital trim? Uh, you know, what do you use it for? I use it to get more input gain. And it's like, well, hang on a second. Right. If that's after the converter, <laughs> how is that working? Yeah. I'm not sure I get that workflow. So uh, in terms of just getting the fader back up to a, a good working resolution, sure, I'll, I'll buy that. You want to do that? Okay, sure. But it becomes hard to manage over time. You know, you don't have any quick adjustment of that, of multiple channels of that. And that's what the audio subgroup gives you, you know? No, and then, right. you know, if you're trimming something like a guitar keyboard's 25 dB, but that trim is before all of your auxes, then that's changing the resolution of the auxes also because those aren't linear either. Well, that's true. But if it's if those auxes are pre-fader, right, and you've made that trim to get your input fader at high resolution, then those auxes are going to be at good resolution as well. Oh, that's a good right? point. Right? Yeah, if you're it's right. Pre- if it's post-fader workflow from your front of house, then you definitely want to do that and get your your input faders at higher resolution, and then the other auxes will follow, right? But if yep. you've got to have that input fader down at minus twenty, let's say, yeah, and then get that gain back in an auxiliary that you're feeding to monitors, that's going to be that's troublesome. That's troublesome for sure. Could you see a scenario where a flexible digital trim throughout the signal chain could be helpful? No. Okay, I'll tell me why. It. Because it, it, I mean, this is going to sound self-serving. If you just set the gain right in the first place, you shouldn't need it. Yeah, okay. That that to me is like, okay, well, we've got this gaping head wound up at the input stage, and we're just yeah. going to put a whole bunch of Band-Aids on it <laughs> by the time we get it to All the, the output through. stage, yeah. you know, yeah. and try to make it feel good. You know, just get it. it you know, I... I this kind of the premise that I start with that when I give that presentation is how can something that is so simple, seemingly so simple to do, be so fraught with danger and, yeah, you know, different ways to do it. I mean, I, I say it all the time. Ask 10 engineers how they set input gain. You're going to get 15 different answers. Right. <laughs> and it's like, all I got to do is get the mic to line level. Every All the work I want to do is after that, you know. Why is it so hard to set that guy? That's funny. So one of your opening questions in that presentation was, uh, where did zero dB go? <laughs> yeah. Like, how did we even get to this point? You know, you have you have a slide in there where um, you've got six different faders set up, and they're all labeled the different types of metering we may see in a digital yeah. platform. You put the same source through all six, yeah, and all of the numbers on the scale are different, but then where the meter is is also different. but it's the same output coming from each one of those. But, you know, the, the and, you know, the punchline of that segment of the um, presentation is, okay, let's, let's examine this closely because each one of these meters, even though they look very different, are telling us exactly the same thing. Yeah. It's the way we interpret the scale and we interpret the ballistics of the meter. Like you've got to know what you're looking at or you're going to make horrible mistakes here. Horrible mistakes. Yeah, because you could just see it and go, oh, that looks low, and just go ahead and I'll give it six more. Look, that's, you know, people did that all the time in VU. Yeah. 
all the time in VU because a VU meter ballistic shaves off a lot of peak information. You don't see that peak information in that VU. And if you see guys, you know, getting RMS level of a VU meter all the way up to the zero point, I mean, chances are it's really saturating somewhere. You know, I mean, especially for especially for things like drums. But that, but again, we could get away with that in analog. You know, there was an element of that in analog where you kind of go, hmm, regression. Right. I like it. You know, but a VU meter on a plugin is still digital. <laughs> it's still digital. So, like you, know? you had, there's one uh, bit on the 1176, yeah. which. I have on every vocal. And let me tell you how many times I've turned that metering away from gain reduction. (laughs) Uh, Zero. (laughs) Never once have I hit that plus four or plus eight button, partly because I didn't know what the hell they did. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that one's tripped up more people than probably anything on this planet. You know, given, you know, that plus four is kind of an audio standard, plus eight's a broadcast standard. You're just changing the metering standard there, you know? Yeah. I just go, oh, the output is how I'm going to trim. My output stage, like, oh, it's a little too hot. Let me back that down or let me turn that up. That thing could be clipping for all I know. It probably was, you know. So let's so let's park there for a minute. Let's give some good advice. What should people be doing if they understand the metering of their input indicator on their channel strip or their fader? How does that correlate with plug-in metering? First, is there a standard? Second, if there's not, then how should guys decipher how that metering should look and what they're actually seeing in the plugin. Yeah. I, I think because if it's different on every plugin, that's going to be real frustrating. So, well, and, and it's not necessarily different on every plugin to me, the place where it, it is challenged and it kind of, it can fall down very quickly is when you have a plugin that is existing in the digital domain and they're trying to use an analog scaled meter there. Yeah. That's, that's where yeah. it kind of falls down for me. And if you'll notice, like if you look at it over time, way more plugins now, are using a, a DBFS meter in their plugins. Yeah. Because it's it's the only thing that's really accurate there to tell you right. really what's going on. The rest is just, is that a Lemma 76? No, that's a picture of a Lemma 76. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. right, right, right. So, you know, the 1176, I think, was the most interesting one. And it's why I did it intently in that uh, in that presentation, because if if you remember right, you know, if you get line level going into the plugin, the meter is sitting and just bouncing at about minus 20 on the yeah. VU, which would indicate to me that zero on the VU is full scale. Yep. Well, what's happening at plus one, plus two, plus three? Right. If it's in the digital domain. I and I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't gone into examining it. Maybe we'll do one lab on the eleven seventy-six meter. I don't know. But, you know, that was one of those things where, and I swear to you, I mean, I, I sympathize with you, Lee, because when I first started using that plugin, I remember thinking, oh, 1176, I know this like the back of my hand. Let me use that. And I'm sure I was just yeah. screwing the pooch more times than I ever got it right, you know, until I kind of yeah. got in the studio and went, oh, now, wait a minute. Hang on a second. <laughs> let, me, yeah. let me go get the real one for a second. Hang on. Let me just do a couple things here. And the good news is, I was as I was watching that, I was... um. I was doing command F in the Yamaha user manual, <laughs> searching for things like meter, minus 18, <laughs> minus 20. And, you know, when you when you uh, search for DB in the 1,000-page Rivage manual, yeah. it gives you about 250 entries, but they're all from the word standby, not DB. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so that was fun. Whoever said search engines are a good idea. I'm I not know. so certain. I'm not so certain. What I love, though, about the presentation is that the slide that you used from Yamaha yeah. to indicate that their zero is minus 20 and that it is the point at which green turns to yellow on the meter was from the LS9 manual. Yes. It wasn't from their flagship console. It was from an LS9. It was like, finally, we get clarity from Yamaha because <laughs> we know exactly what this is doing. It's just, that was funny to me. I mean, I ask people all the time, you know, if, you know, well, what's what's line level in the meter? Well, on Yamaha, it's minus 14. Well, on Yamaha, right. it's minus 18. Well, on Digico, it's minus 16. I, you know, it's like, hey, oh, guys, yeah. there's only one answer here. So, you know. Well, and I... I heard you say that, and then I went and looked, and I cannot find in the Rivage manual. Again, look, it's a thousand pages, yeah. and there's another four hundred page one on how to set it up. Like, there's loads of documents. I need to probably cut them some slack, 
But the one thing I did find on that one, the green changes to yellow at minus 18. So does it change from console to console with them? I don't know. I'm going to have to ask them to find well, out. Well, yeah, but if you look at even on that LS9, right? Yeah. It doesn't show minus 20. Oh. It shows 22 and 18. Right. The indicators are 22 and 18. Yeah. Okay. So it could be minus 20. Yeah. I would bet that it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, what I was saying before, when I was, go- or not Googling, when I was command F and DB, I did find <laughs> a section on. Did you say F and DB? <laughs> yes. He did. I was gonna, they are F I was going to go there. <laughs> yes. And that's the title of this podcast. Yeah. Command um, F and DB. It has a meter section for insert points in and out. Yeah. And I thought, okay, that's good. But it's just three lights. It's green, yellow, and red. Yeah. So it tells you if it's green, it's less than or equal to 18. If it's yellow, it's greater than or equal to 18. And if it's red, it's zero. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like, make up your damn mind, guys. Like, is it minus 18? Like, let's all be the same. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, you could, uh, look, you can just take a tone generator and right. put it into an input and sort this out. You know I mean? You should be able to. You know, that's one of those, I mean, that's where digital is kind of cool because it makes it very simple. Take that tone, put it in at minus 20, and it should be that if you put a fader at zero and a master fader at zero, it better be minus 20 at the end. Yeah. yeah. That's what I love, you know, your comment in the in the lab that bit math doesn't lie. It it's does like, not. Yeah, that's that's true in, in the digital domain especially. It's like if, if you know the reference signal level, it's not going to lie. Yeah, so yeah. that's good. Yeah, it doesn't get doesn't get lost. We uh, a few episodes ago we had Kyle Hamilton on, and we're asking him about gain structure, and his response was, "I leave no bits on the table." <laughs> <laughs> like that is really good. I like that approach. You know, that is good. Okay, I'm going to go back to this digital trim thing. Okay. So, using an external preamp, then being able to attenuate that level into the converter. Is there an argument then that we should have the option to trim between the preamp and the converter? I think, I, I mean, honestly, I think you can make that argument. It just becomes, I mean, look, and I think I said this in the lab, we have trouble setting one knob right yeah. now, <laughs> right? We, do we really want to put an entire additional gain structure between the preamp and the converter yeah. to get us into the console now? Right. I mean, let's maybe let's just sit with it as it is for a while and see if we can get this part sorted out and then maybe do that. Because then, then you know, and, I, you know, I'll fly this flag because I, I'm so passionate about it. Then that starts to make virtual sound check really challenging to do, mm. you know, in terms of setting gain instead of in terms of setting track gain. Because now you're just setting trim level on playback. You're not impacting drive of the preamp now. You know, right. So that can get a little a little squirrely, but if you you know if you're willing to concede that piece of it, then yeah, sure, I, I can see where you could you could make an argument for that for sure. Yeah, won't be showing up on a venue is what you're saying. <laughs> well, no, I'm saying maybe I, you just have to okay. concede it. You know, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, we do a similar thing like in this latest version of software release, we have heat on every channel now, which is preamp distortion or tape. You know, I, I shouldn't right. say distortion, preamp drive or tape drive on every input channel now. So. You know, it's it's trying to emulate that. And we always kind of took the approach of, you know, in our design of we want to have the cleanest possible colorless preamp stage possible, but we're going to give you the most options to be able to harmonically enhance that signal in the digital domain. You know, so if you want to do preamp emulation, you do it right after the converter. You know, yeah. if you want to do tape emulation, any of those kind of things, you can do it anywhere in the path. Uh, but you know, if you I, and it's this is kind of the analog mindset. If we put a really colorful preamp out there, hang it off of the front end of the converter, then that's a one-trick pony. Everybody's got that color at that point. Yeah, you know, that's right. that's the analog mindset. I, I mean, I've said that before too. I, you know, I can take analog, and it's a one-trick pony. Everything is analog. I I, I can't make it sound more digital. I can yeah. take digital and make it sound more analog than analog at times. Right. So, you know, I was. Uh, you know, again, watching that presentation, just how complex and simple all this is. Yeah, yeah. It's simple, but it's very, very complex. I thought, is there a possibility of having a, like what auto driving is going to do for people? 
you know, we'll look back in 20 years and think, can you believe we ever drove cars? Do you think, is there a 20 years from now, 50 years from now, can you believe we used those old types of microphones that needed extra voltage to get converted to digital before we were able to mix them? And that's, that part of it is, I think, very far off on the horizon. Um, I kind of hope that doesn't happen, by the way. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm, I mean, it, you can't, you can't just uh, shove to, to the side the fact that there's art involved here. Right. There's interpretation right. and art. I mean, look, let's, I always, I, I love looking at it, things in this way. It was kind of the way I was taught to do it in, in physics in college. Go the other direction. Let the AI happen first. Allow it to do all the audio decisions and, and make the music that we've heard for 50 or 60 years. What do you think it sounds like? Blah. Yeah. Lifeless. Right? No emotion. Well, I mean, there's no accidents in it. Right. You know, no happy accidents. Right. Because a lot of, and let's just stay in the realms of music here. A lot of things that we've grown to love about the sound of music were happy accidents. That's true. You know, and the box ain't going to make happy accidents. Even though I, you know, I, I heard Gene Remitty from, uh, from IBM talking about this, you know, cause they were talking about, I think I, I actually wrote a article on this once. Uh, having AI do this kind of work, this kind of editing work in film, right? And she was asked, can, you know, can AI, can you teach it creativity? And she said, oh, absolutely, we can. And I remember thinking, okay, hmm. now hang on a second. All right. I mean, this is going to, now we're going to get to a, a point where we seriously talk about thinking outside the box. Because then for the human to be creative, what you have to do is anything that the AI doesn't do, right? Wow. You follow mm. me there? Yeah, I do. You, yeah. you, I mean, if the AI is this programmed creativity, then creativity of the human demands, I've got to do anything but that. It was, it was a fascinating thing she did on, uh, this was probably, this has got to be a good couple of years ago, maybe three, four years ago now, Yeah. where she was talking about they're using AI now to uh, create movie trailers. Wow. Right. As a put, And it was considered, before this was starting to happen, People who could put together effective movie trailers were some of the most highly coveted people in the music or the movie industry, right? Because what they had to do was put together the essence of the movie in about, you know, two minutes and it had Mm -hmm. to target the right demographic, right? All of that. And tell the story, but not tell the whole story. You know, entice the story without giving away, right? (laughs) And it, it would take, you know, they would work on these trailers for weeks, months, tons of time. Whereas in AI, you can have it do the analysis of the story, put in emphasis points, tell it the demographic you're going after, and it can get it done in about a day. Wow. You know, that was her, her claim of it. You know, so it's, but it's one of those things where, you, you know, as the music guy, I started thinking, well, that absolutely applies to music. Yeah. Absolutely applies. You can, you can have AI mix your music. Okay, these are the inputs. This is the style of music we want. This is the demographic we're going after. Okay, I, AI, go get, go get it. Go tell us what we need to do there. Could I see that happening? I absolutely could see that happening. You think well, record labels wouldn't want that? Oh, of course they, they would. They absolutely would want yeah. that. I yeah. get uh, an album mix with no revisions. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. I, just, for, just for fun... One time, a few months ago, I I messed with eMastered, which is the sort of uh-huh. online a- yeah. AI-based mastering tool. And when I got the, the, you know, it goes through the process, and it's like a three-minute analysis, and then it spits back what it thinks is the mix you're going for. And my first response was, I, I kind of see what you're doing. Like, I know what you think. You're supposed to be doing, but man, this just doesn't sound yeah. very good at all, much less very artistic. Right. So I agree with you. The art of it is is something that we have to uh, preserve, but I think, at all costs. Music is the best uh, harbinger of this, right? I mean, how many times do we have to see this happen in music? As soon as a style of music becomes predictable, we go completely the other direction. It's right? out, right? It's, yep. it's out. Let's go somewhere else now, you know? 
So, you know, how, how would something like AI deal with that? I, I mean, I don't know. That's above my pay grade. Maybe they're thinking that way. I don't know. But it sure seems like that's, that's the human surviving there saying, that's what the machine says to do. That's not what I'm doing. Sorry. Right. Okay, circle back to microphones. Uh, I wrote this down too. <laughs> how did we? How did we get there? <laughs> I don't know. Man, I we went a, we went for a long boat ride there. Holy cow! Um, <laughs> when we're talking about digital audio sources, so wireless mic with Dante built in, for yeah. example, or do we need to think any differently when it comes to sources that we're not using a preamp at all? There's a preamp somewhere. Mm, that's a good point. Unless it's a digital microphone. Right. I mean, how many times, how many times have you seen guys do this? Take a wire, let's go out of the digital domain for a second. Take a wireless microphone receiver and put it in line level. Yep. And bring it into a microphone input. Uh, all the time. Right. Why do they do that? Oh, it sounds better or it's got, uh, the signal's better. Yeah. Which it's not, it's not your, I mean, you're you're cramming a big signal into a mic pre and going to pad it all the way down and and try to get it to work. You'd be much much better off there, putting that device in mic level, bringing it in to a mic level input, and then working on the output of the microphone in transmission to get it to the right level to the receiver because it's going to broadcast better, it's going to compand better, blah blah. It's it's another version of gain structure there. Okay, so we have a lot of people who use a lot of wireless mics <laughs> I know we right do. now yeah. <laughs> who need to rewind rewind for about 30 seconds and listen to all that again. Yeah. So mic level output from your receiver receiver into mic input, input. Yeah. the rest of the the rest I of mean, the I mean if you're going to if you're going to go line level out of your receiver then come into a line input on the console. Right. Which may just be, you know, if it doesn't have a discrete line input, you may just need to pad it down and bring it in. That that's fine. Just I'm just saying, make sure it's line level. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because even the that's good. like some of the mics now, you can just patch right into your Dante network. Right. Right. Uh, but yeah. But again, you know, you you want to pay attention to gain structure there because obviously there's a there's an analog piece to that yeah. and a digital conversion piece to that. And how much of it you have control of, I have no idea sitting here. Right. You know, so again, you've got to, you've got to pay attention to transmission at that point. You know, you're still going to be able to trim that thing coming into the console. You yeah. shouldn't need to do very much to it. Honestly, you know. Right. I mean, that's, that's part of the reason for going through all that hassle of getting it to, to Dante or whatever your network protocol is. But remember, there's a, there's a converter involved there. So. What's the original reason or the or the right reason to attenuate plus or minus on the transmitter receivers? Because you want to get uh, a sufficient enough signal to broadcast it properly, right? Okay. Right? You want to have enough output on the because you know there's compansion that takes place there, right? The fixed threshold, right? Okay. You you don't have the ability to adjust that companding that's going on there and it's based on a broadcast level. Right, a projected broadcast level. So you know, uh, it, you know the worst situation for this. I'll give you the worst example of this: make the output of the receiver really hot, and turn down the sensitivity on the the wireless transmitter very far to get the signal to be the right level at the console. Uh, That's the worst of all situations. There, not going to transmit correctly, not going to compand correctly, et cetera. You know, you've got to pay attention to that broadcast piece of the spectrum there in terms of level. Because the transmission level needs to be pretty high. Well, it, it needs to be high without overmodulating it. Right, right, right. You don't want to undermodulate either. I, there's, there's a right, <laughs> hate to say it, there's a right way. I'm sure it's in the Yamaha manual, isn't it? <laughs> you know, Robert, I, I have found that every console manufacturer puts all the information you need right in the manual. Well, I'm going to take that one step further, Lee, because I don't know if you know this, but in Venue 7 software, all of the documentation for the console and the system is on the console now. Oh, that's great. You actually have a help tab on the console with all of that information. 
Speaking of Venue 7, uh, we should talk about <laughs> yeah, it. I did. did. I, I spoke need, of it, yes. We need to go down that rabbit trail for a few minutes. <laughs> so I've heard from someone that it's the largest software release in Venue history for sure, maybe even Avid's. That is accurate. It is an enormous software release. I, I, if, if you guys that are listening haven't been following, it's going to take us we just added another webinar to the series. So it's going to be a six webinar series just to cover the software features that have been added uh, in the console. So it's not total software, just the new features, just the new features, just the new features. So probably, you know, six hours, six hours plus of talking about that stuff. <clears throat> yeah. It's and huge. The, uh, maybe one of the larger um, additions is the change to delay compensation. Yeah, the yeah the addition of really, for all intents and purposes, I'll say comprehensive delay compensation. You know, not, nothing in digital, especially nothing in digital live sound, is going to be one hundred percent comprehensive. Where it doesn't matter where you route, how you route, it's going to compensate for it. There's some there's some guidelines and some rules for the routing, but boy, it covers just about everything I can think of for uh, certainly for music mixing. That is for sure. What's the headline there? What's a couple of the biggest changes additions? <laughs> Uh, the huge changes are we, well, for starters, we, uh, which we just, uh, recently, recently released, but this is in support of it. Uh, the ability to have the system on Starpoint connection, right. Where you can use a Luminex network switch and you don't have to create these redundant loops anymore. It's just primary and redundant connection. Just plug in your devices, right. Which makes it much, much simpler. But the thing that leads to that is that we also now support three systems, input sharing and gain tracking uh, via those switches. So you can just plug in three control surfaces, three engines, plug in your IO, and those three systems are now sharing inputs uh, and gain tracking. So that's that's a big So for deal. people who, in, in church world, for people who aren't aware, one of the, I don't want to say limitations, but one of the maybe factors for some people in choosing or not choosing S6L was that they weren't able to have a console in front of house monitors and broadcast all linked together, but now you can. Yeah, you can. And the cool thing about using the switches, uh, I got to be careful how I say this, but you know, it leads you open to, but how many consoles do you want to put on there? You know, I mean, certainly there'll be a limitation at some point, but you, it, it certainly could be more than three, uh, you know, I think we could probably qualify up to five, six, something like that, if we wanted to do it pretty easily. So, just a matter of building the test grids and making sure it does. We'll start with three and see how it goes with that. And then what we got in Pro Tools a few years ago with Heat. Now that's on Vineyard. Heat on every channel now. Uh, yeah, or every input channel, I should say now. So you have the ability to uh, put tape emulation or preamp emulation, like a uh, you know. A, uh, tube style uh, preamp emulation on every input channel. And the cool thing about that is uh, even compared to, I think Yamaha does a similar thing with silk, right? Yeah. But that is part of the analog process in their situation. Right. This is actually part of the digital process. So you, you can, can come back in, in via Pro Tools in virtual soundcheck and actually make adjustments on it. It's all snapshotable. You can even create events that control those heat elements if you wanted to do it, you know, where maybe a fader if as i turn up a fader past zero it puts more drive into it you know all kinds of things like that if you Oh that's it. super slick. Yeah. That's yeah. very cool. That's cool. And then the other the other big feature that is exciting to me is the for lack of a better way of saying it the wet dry yeah. knob on essentially every parameter. So parallel paths for a lot of things. Yeah, so every that's available to every input and output channel you can, you have the ability to parallel compress, meaning you can have a mix wet dry on every compressor. You have the same ability on a noise gate, so you can. And people get confused with the gate. It's like, why would you ever want to have wet dry on a gate? And I give an example. I think in the Avid webinar that I did uh, last week, talking about what, like, if you had a very a drum, maybe a snare drum that's very soft in terms of impulse, well, you could set up the gate to be really chippy, right? Where it would be a very short, snappy gate, and then just blend that into the snare drum and get more attack on your snare drum, right? So it, that's one way to do it. That's common studio workflow. And then the other one is being able to mix wet dry on your equalizer. And this is always another one that kind of baffles people. And I go, wait a minute, why would I want to do wet dry? And it's because it works as a scaler. 
via the mix knob, I can actually adjust all of the filters at one time in terms of their depth or gain, right? It's almost like a percentage of curve versus a full percentage of curve. And it works, I, I, using that on system equalization is just absolutely fantastic, you know? Where, you know, when the room's empty, your, your filters might be a little exaggerated. As people fill up, you just reduce the, the mix on it a little bit, just pull the whole filter set back in. Works just fantastic. That's that's really exciting. Yeah, it, it really Very is. Cool. It really is, especially having that parallel compression component on a mix bus, because that that is actually really hard to accomplish uh, in the digital domain. You know, especially in the past where we've needed to do bridge channels and all kinds of things like that to be able to do right. it. But even, being able to even do, um, you know, parallel compression on your master bus, right? Well, we, can, we can do it now. Just put the compressor on there and mix it up, man. Go for it. You know, it's already Brad Maddox done. is going to love that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm actually, I do a webinar next Wednesday on the entire delay compensation thing. And I'm going to cover a lot of those workflows because the other big thing that we're doing now in this software release is all the bus to bus workflows, like group to group, aux to group, group to aux, any of that is available. So then oh, you can, fantastic. then you can truly set up, uh, you know, a music bus and then a P bus that is you know, yeah. a parallel compression of it, a true parallel compression of it, and then send that on to a master. And all of that is compensated for. You know, there's no no latency penalty for it. That's fantastic because I love sending all my instruments to their own group, and then I want to send them all to a band group or a band mm -hmm. bus, have a vocal bus, and then send that to the PA. Yeah, yeah. And the only way to do that in Yamaha, because they won't let you send bus to bus, is... I use the stereo A and the stereo B and then sum those together in a matrix. Yeah. yeah. But on SSL and other consoles, you have stems and auxes and they let you get yourself in trouble. <laughs> yeah, we actually right, try right. to hold people back from getting in trouble. I mean, there's some really clever programming on SSXL now where like even if you're going to go group to group, yeah. If you select the group and say, "Okay, I'm going to send this to another group." You don't actually have that group as an option. It's subtracted from any of the the button push options. So that you can't. So you create. can't cause a feedback loop yeah. because yeah. it's right. it's not even it's not even selectable. possible. Yeah. That's good, yeah. right? And if you were to do that in aux, because there is a time where you might want to do that in an aux, right? Where you might want to feed yeah. it back into itself. Then a prompt comes up on the screen and says, "Okay, see what you're doing, but just understand you could be creating a feedback loop." <laughs> so, That's, you know, are the, you sure? Are, are you, you really, really sure? sure you want to do it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's like the Pro Tools thing. These will be de will be deleted, gone forever, gone forever from disk. It's like, are you sure you want to <laughs> yeah. clear these regions? Yeah. I mean, some of the other stuff that's coming in that software release are uh, all consoles now have 400 plug-in slots. Um, so uh, we, we kind of took away that tiering of the plug-in slots because it was making it hard to go console to console, but that's just not an issue anymore. You just Everybody has the same amount of plug-in slots. Uh, we have an uh, AVB Milan card uh, that is going to be available for the console now, uh, 128 uh, play or forward and receive. Uh, you can set up these huge kind of send and receive networks between consoles. I mean, it's just amazing workflow there. So that's cool. Yeah. Speaking of AB AVB, where is the uh, what's the state of the union on the war there between audio protocols? I, well, I've see, I've never seen it as a war. Okay. I, I've just, it's never been a binary question for me. I, I've always said, yeah, I'm okay with both of those things. Uh, but, you know, certainly there are advantages to each. Uh, yeah. In my windshield, the way it looks, Dante is very accessible. They have tons of product available to you. Use consumer grade switches, all of that kind of thing. Yeah. The place where that falls down for me at times is that it's a, it's a dynamic throughput in those devices, right? where throughput can be a shifting, a moving target. That's the part that gets scary for me for big system design, for really meaningful system design. And that's where ABB really stands above it in, in many ways, is that that is a fixed throughput. That all of that bandwidth is allocated, reserved. We know what the throughput's going to be, regardless of how many channels we add to it, how much pressure we put on the network. You know, So to me, that's the, the big dividing line. Now, we can go into the whole level two versus level three Thing sure. on the internet, et cetera. But again, that's why I just say, I, I don't want to have either or. I'll take them both. I got take applications both, yeah. for both. And that's we do smart. that with SXL. We support both. We want to have both of those things there. I thought that was happening when that Dante card became available. I thought, okay, I think this is just going to be a, a big, happy ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. Well, we certainly want it that way. I mean, that's kind of the driving force behind Milan is that all the big PA manufacturers 
are supporting Milan, you know, where it's this AVB kind of branch off protocol to be able to do all of this piping of information to and from their systems. And what is important with information going to these systems? Throughput, right? We don't want system alignment changing as a function of bandwidth. Uh, so, you know, they're looking for stability and predictability, uh, you know, determination of throughput there. So they're all on the bandwagon now. L Acoustics there. Everybody else is coming. You know, tons of other people there. That's Meyer. great. And it's all That's big cool. channel counts. You know, I mean, you're going to have some really, really big channel counts there, especially for these big immersive systems. It's going to be really important to do that. I'm about to ask a question that may require another podcast episode in itself. But <laughs> well, you know, we can... I, you know, I'm available. I think we've um, done yeah. several of those questions already today because I think some of our <laughs> listeners are going, hey, can you talk more about that? Because you didn't quite get to the bottom of it for me. So, <laughs> Well, that's me. You know, just light up a room and leave. That's what I do. You know? Yeah. Well, let me just tease this. Maybe we talk about it a little, but it, it will be. It, it's a, uh, what do you call it? opening up a can here so output we've been talking a lot about input but on the output side what about console output like are they all the same or are outputs unique as well and we should be aware of what levels come out of the consoles well i i mean it, there's a d to a conversion there right is it as critical as a to d conversion i i don't i, I my gut tells me it's not as critical but I would certainly pay attention to it. Uh, I think we get a we get off the hook a little bit with um, get let off the hook a little bit with output because we always have enough output level. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that conversion. I mean that output stage never never seems to suffer from it. You know. Yeah. So that I'm, makes sense. I'm less worried about that than I am the capture of the mic pre. You know. So my next question as that relates. Well, that was a half an episode right there. So that was <laughs> <laughs> um, when you're talking or thinking about system design for a tour say yeah. or, an, or an installation the size of pa are you thinking about at what level will this pa be running at so for example like putting a k1 system or a dmb gsl in a 4000 seat room seems like that is way overkill that pa is going to be running at 25 percent uh, yeah, I think there's, I think there's absolutely credibility to that line of thinking. I, I mean, the right tool for the right job, right? I, I mean, yeah, I'm. I, that's my whole mantra in life. I think you know, you can do anything if you got the right tool. And I don't necessarily mean overkill in money. Like, take that aside. Just no, no. I, does a PA money doesn't sound even come better? Yeah. Does a PA sound better running at eighty percent of its bandwidth? Ultimately, the question you're asking is: Is there a sweet spot for the PA? Yeah, it, exactly. There it is. Yeah, I'd say there probably is. I, I, although I think we're we're so much better at that in PA design today than we ever even dreamed of being twenty years ago. Yeah, you know, I mean that that was, I was certainly gone there with you in the analog crossover to PA days, I, without question there. But we're so much better with that now. I mean, you think about the dynamic range, clean. I mean, really clean, incredible dynamic range that yeah. is available via the PA system today. It is yeah. breathtaking compared to what it used to be. And, and I take issue with anybody that says, oh, PAs don't sound as good as they used to. Baloney. Oh, that's Baloney. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's definitely yeah. not true. Baloney. Give me a break. If you believe that, you didn't mix on enough of those old PAs, <laughs> let me tell you. But, but isn't there, <laughs> and I may be wrong about this, but isn't there a sort of power ratio from the output signal of your system getting to the amps, getting to the PA, that it seems like there there should be a sweet spot. Like if I if I only drive it at ten percent of its capacity, somehow it's just not going to be as robust as it would be yeah, if I was I mean, at seven. I mean, if you put in a PA system into a venue and you're driving ten percent of it on a regular basis, that's criminal. Yeah, I mean, it's just criminal. Yeah, I and mean, it's just so incredibly incredible poor design. And you, you know the. We we really wrestled with this in the early days of line source, you know, where the marketers of the world wanted to say, yes, look how much less PA you can get away with, with these line source PAs, you know? And it was like, yeah, okay, I, I get that. But in line source, part of the magic is using more boxes right. to get pattern control, right. right? And to get more control, you you use more boxes. And, and more boxes doesn't necessarily give you more amplitude, 
it just gives you better coverage capability, right? That that yeah. is the the mindset everybody gets into. But that is just completely at odds with people that are bidding specs, you know, and accepting bids. It's like, well, wait a minute, why do we have all these cabinets? So, you know, there has to be some some discipline, I guess is the right word to use there, in terms of the box topology you use. You know, would I be better off? And forgive me, I'm just going to shoot from the hip here. Yeah. Would I be better off with six K ones? or 12 caras in the building. I would say more often than not, if it's any kind of geometry in the building, you'd be better off with the 12 cars. Right. Yeah, I agree. Because of the pattern control and coverage and all of those things yeah. being better. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. You follow me there? I, I, and by you know, better off, you mean sounds better. Well, would sound better, certainly because it's, it's going to be more controlled in the environment. Yeah. Right? That's the yep. first place to stop. And then on top of it, you know, in terms of just amplitude, et cetera, that it can produce, I, I'm not as concerned about that. You know, I mean, if you right. if you want K1s, go K1s, I, you know, but I, I think in terms of just its ability to fit into the geometry, you know, build, kind of build the right polar to get into the geometry, you're better off with more boxes, you know. Totally agree. I think that's really what I was after. Yeah. Now, I mean, there's the complete other end of the spectrum, right? Where you got guys out there who will say, well, really what you need is one good box. It really should just be one box. Oh, I know some of those guys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I've you want to look at Facebook it in that vacuum, okay, it's like, well, yeah, phase response. Yeah, in the room, one box. Yeah, probably good. Let's talk coverage for a second here. Yeah. And let's talk what happens when you put them in a football stadium. <laughs> Sorry. We're not going to go no, there. I'm not going to go there with you. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I love those guys. And we we all know who we're talking about here. I, yeah. I love those guys yeah. and and have got a lot of respect for them. But some of that thinking is yeah. a little off the rails for me. For music, for music, that's a good point. Well, this has been great. Oh, let's do another hour. Come on, <laughs> you can run. You can run the next hour next month. Come on. <laughs> that's probably good. I got a kitchen to go remodel. You do. I've seen the boxes in the background there. Yeah, I'm I'm a sequestered to my garage, and not because I have COVID, because my house is. I got three classrooms in in there, and a kitchen torn apart. It's awesome. Do we need to start a GoFundMe for some food for you or something? I mean, oh, I send some. Uh, I make send my, Lee yeah, food. Little yeah, DoorDash. I make my garage. kids hunt for their food, so <laughs> they can either uh, plant gardens outside or. Uh, learn how to shoot a bow and arrow that's how they eat <laughs> there you go i know she'd been doing a few hunting trips there I, i've been keeping up i did you. yeah i did last yeah. week nice it did not go well but for I you or there. the deer for me came back empty-handed <laughs> oh. too hot empty cooler yeah. oiled say. again yeah. passed on some immatures and yeah. it was good really man. hot 75 degrees every day not good that's too hot for hunting man it is it's supposed to be it cold is. when you're hunting but you know what is awesome? Sitting in a tree stand for 50 hours with no phone. Enjoy that? During the election week, nonetheless. <laughs> so it was like perfect. Like, get me out Forced of here. Forced to not pay well, you attention. you know where all the deer were. All yeah, the deer all the were deer. sitting in front of their TV. I mean, that's, <laughs> right. that's why you didn't get any. <laughs> exactly. That's funny. Well, as always, th- this has been great. Well, listen, uh, I'll self-promote here yeah. for one second. Yeah. Sorry. Please do. If you, if, because uh, you guys know that I've been on this bandwagon for years now of talking about latency versus propagation, delayed compensation. Uh, next Friday at, uh, I think it's 10 o'clock mountain time, I'm going to be doing the full breakdown of this delayed compensation model that's in the S6L now. And it's, it's meaty. It's deep and meaty. But if you under, un, want to understand what's going on there and, and see some really, really cool stuff in action, I encourage you to come to that webinar. And for and for guys who haven't checked it out yet, the the previous labs up to this point have been awesome. So if you're not connected to Robert's YouTube channel, you've got to go and subscribe and get caught up. I mean, each one is a significant chunk of brain power and time, but I guarantee you that it's worth it. I mean, just the ones on gain structure and uh, obviously, you know, delay compensation was already a part of that uh, as well, but. Yeah. Um, there are so many great topics already that it's just a wealth of information that's so solid. I can't recommend it enough. Thank you, man. Appreciate that. Yeah, well, I'll probably take this delay compensation thing and actually drag it into the lab for one of the sessions and really dig down on it there. Because we don't really don't have the time to do it in one of the 
avid webinars. We only got about 45, 50 minutes to do it there, but it's it's a topic that you could spend hours on, you know, discussing different ways to do things and, and see what what comes out of the wash. You know? That's cool. How do people sign up for that? They just go to Avid's website. You can. I'll tell you what. You can also go to you can also go to my site and sign up for the lab because uh, I will be promoting it through my lab emails. So if you want to go to robertscoville.com, sign up for the lab or the back lounge. Either one of those will get you the email. I'll get you directed there. Awesome. Great. Guys, thank you. Fantastic catching up with you. It's been too long since I spoke to you. As always, it's been great, and we'll look forward to doing it again. Thanks for the invite, Phyllis. We'll see All you. right, see ya. Bye-bye.